Section 13 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 13. John Quincy Adams, Part 2. As you step across the dorsal and pass from the little entry into the living room, you pause and murmur, Excuse me? For there is a fire on the hearth, the tea kettle sings softly, and on the back of a chair hangs a sunbonnet. And over there on the table is an open Bible, and on the open page is a pair of spectacles and a red crumpled handkerchief. Yes, the folks are at home. They have just stepped into the next room, perhaps are eating dinner. And so you sit down in an old hickory chair, or in the high settle that stands against the wall by the fireplace, and wait, expecting every moment that the kitchen door will creak on its wooden hinges, and Abigail, smiling and gentle, will enter to greet you. Mr. Spear understands, and, disappearing, leaves you to your thoughts and June's. John and Abigail were lovers their lifetime through. Their published letters show a oneness of thought and sentiment that, viewed across the years, moves us to tears to think that such as they should at last feebly totter and then turn to dust. But here they came in joyous springtime of their lives. Upon this floor you tread the ways their feet have trod. These walls have a code to their singing voices, listened to their counsels, and seen love's caress. There is no surplus furniture, nor display, nor setting forth of useless things. Every article you see has its use. The little shelf of books, well-thumbed, displays no trilby, nor quest for the golden girl, not an anachronism anywhere. Curtains, chairs, tables, and the one or two pictures all ring true. In the kitchen are washtubs and butter ladles and bowls, and the lantern hanging by the chimney, with a dipped candle inside, has a carefully scraped horn face. It is a lantern. In the cupboard across the corner are blue china and pewter spoons and steel knives, with just a little polished brass stuff sent from England. Down in the cellar, with its dirt walls, are apples, yellow pumpkins, and potatoes, each in its proper place, for Abigail was a rare good housekeeper. Then there is a barrel of cider with a hickory spigot and an inviting gourd. All tells of economy, thrift, industry, and the cunning of women's hands. In the kitchen there is a funny cradle, hooded and cut out of a great pine log. The little mattress and the coverlet seem disturbed, and you would declare the baby had just been lifted out, and you listen for its cry. The rocker is worn by the feet of mothers whose hands were busy with needles or wheel as they rocked and sang, and from the fact that it is in the kitchen you know that the servant-girl problem then had no terrors. Overhead hang ears of corn, Bunches of dried catnip, pennyroyal, and boneset, and festooned across the corner are strings of dried apples. Then you go upstairs, with conscience pricking a bit, for thus visiting the house of honest folks when they are away, for you know how all good housewives dislike to have people prying about, especially in the upper chambers. At least June said so. The room to the right was Abigail's own. You would know it was a woman's room. There is a faint odour of lavender and thyme about it, and the white and blue draperies around the little mirror, and the little feminine nothings on the dresser reveal the lady who would appear well before the man she loves. 
The bed is a high-draped four-poster, plain and solid, evidently made by a ship carpenter who had ambitions. The coverlet is light blue and matches the draperies of windows, dresser and mirror. On the pillow is a nightcap in which even a homely woman would be beautiful. There is a clothes-press in the corner into which Mr. Spears says we may look. On the door is a slippery elm button, and within, hanging on wooden pegs, are dainty dresses, stiff, curiously embroidered gowns they are, that came from across the sea, sent, perhaps, by John Adams when he went to France, and left Abigail here to farm, and sew, and weave, and teach the children. June examined the dresses carefully, and said the embroidery was handmade, and must have taken monks and monks to complete. On a high shelf of the closet are bandboxes in which are bonnets, astonishing bonnets, with prodigious flaring fronts. Mr. Spear insisted that June should try one on, and when she did, we stood off and declared the effect was a vision of loveliness. Outside the clothes press, on a peg, hangs a linsey woolsey everyday gown that shows marks of wear. The waist came just under June's arms, and the bottom of the dress to her shoe tops. We asked Mr. Spear the price of it, but the custodian is not commercial. In a corner of the room is a cedar chest containing hand-woven linen. By the front window is a little low desk with a leaf that opens out for a writing shelf, and here you see quill pens, fresh nibbed, and ink in a curious well made from horn. Here it was that Abigail wrote those letters to her lover husband when he attended those first and second congresses in Philadelphia and then, when he was in France and England, those letters in which we see affection, loyalty, tales of babies with colic, brave political good sense, and all those foolish trifles that go to fill up love letters, and, at the last, are their divine essence and charm. Here she wrote the letter telling of going with their seven-year-old boy, John Quincy, to Penn's Hill, to watch the burning of Charlestown, and saw the flashing of cannons and rising smoke that marked the Battle of Bunker Hill. Here she wrote to her husband, when he was minister to England, quote, This little cottage has more comfort and satisfaction for you than the courts of royalty. End quote. But of all the letters written by that brave woman, none reveals her true nobility better than the one written to her husband the day he became President of the United States. Here it is, entire. Quincy, 8th February, 1797. The sun is dressed in brightest beams to give thy honours to the day, and it may prove an auspicious prelude to each ensuing season. You have this day to declare yourself head of a nation, and now, O Lord, my God, thou hast made thy servant ruler over the people. Give unto him an understanding heart, that he may know how to go out and come in before this great people, that he may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this, thy so great a people, were the words of a royal sovereign, and not less applicable to him who is invested with the chief magistracy of a nation, though he wear not a crown, nor the robes of royalty. My thoughts and my meditations are with you, though personally absent, and my petitions to heaven are that the things which make for peace may not be hidden from your eyes. My feelings are not those of pride or ostentation upon the occasion. They are solemnized by a sense of obligations, the important trusts, and numerous duties connected with it, that you may be enabled to discharge them with honor to yourself, with justice and impartiality to your country, and with satisfaction to this great people 
shall be the daily prayer of your abigail it was in this room that abigail waited while british soldiers ransacked the rooms below and made bullets of the best pewter spoons here her son who was to be president was born john quincy adams was six years old when his father kissed him good-bye and rode away for philadelphia with john hancock and samuel adams who rode a horse loaned him by john adams abigail stood in the doorway holding the baby and watched them disappear in the curve of the road this was in august seventeen hundred seventy four most of the rest of that year abigail was alone with her babies on the little farm it was the same next year and in seventeen hundred seventy six too when john adams wrote home that he had made the formal move for independency and also nominated george washington as commander-in-chief of the army and he hoped things would soon be better those were troublous times in which to live in the vicinity of boston there were straggling troops passing up and down the plymouth road every day sometimes there were red coats and sometimes buff and blue but all seemed to be very hungry and extremely thirsty and the adams household received a great deal more attention than it quoted the master of the house was away but all seemed to know who lived there and the callers were not always courteous in such feverish atmosphere of unrest children evolve quickly into men and women and their faces take on the look of thought where should be only careless happy dimpled smiles yes responsibility matures and that is the way john quincy adams got cheated out of his childhood when eight years of age his mother called him the little man of the house the next year he was a post rider making a daily trip to boston with letter bags across his saddle bows when eleven years of age his father came home to say that someone had to go to france to serve with jay and franklin in making a treaty go said abigail and god be with you but when it was suggested that john quincy go too the parting did not seem so easy but it was a fine opportunity for the boy to see the world of men and the mother's head appreciated it even if her heart did not and yet she had the heroism that is willing to remain behind so father and son sailed away the little john quincy added postscripts to his father's letters and said quote, i send my loving duty to my mamma the boy took kindly to foreign ways as boys will and the french language had no such terrors for him as it had for his father the first stay in europe was only three months and back they came on a leaky ship but the home stay was even shorter than the stay abroad and john adams had again to cross the water on his country's business again the boy went with him it was five years before the mother saw him and then he had gone on alone from paris to london to meet her she did not know him for he was nearly eighteen and a man grown he had visited every country in europe and been the helper and companion of statesmen and courtiers and seen society in its various faces he spoke several languages and in point of polish and manly dignity was a peer of many of his elders mrs adams looked at him and then began to cry whether for joy or for sorrow she did not know her boy had gone escaped her gone forever but instead there was a tall young diplomat calling her mother there was a courier ahead of john quincy adams his father knew it his mother was sure of it and john quincy himself was not in doubt he could then have gone right on but his father was a harvard man and the new england superstition was strong in the adams heart that success could only be achieved when based on a harvard parchment 
So back to Massachusetts sailed John Quincy, and a two-year course at Harvard secured the much-desired diploma. From the very time he crawled over his kitchen floor and pushed a chair, learning to walk, or tumbled down the stairs and then made his way bravely up again alone, he knew that he would arrive. Precautious, proud, firm, and with a coldness in his nature that was not a heritage from either his father or his mother, he made his way. It was a zigzag course, and the way was strewn with the flotsam and jetsam of wrecked parties and blighted hopes, but out of the wreckage John Quincy Adams always appeared, calm, poised, and serene. When he opposed the purchase of Louisiana, it looks as if he allowed his animosity for Jefferson to put his judgment in chancery. He made mistakes, but this was the only blunder of his career. The record of that life, expressed in bold, stands thus. 1767, born May 11th. 1776, post rider between Boston and Quincy. 1778, at school in Paris. 1780, at school in Leyden. 1781, private secretary to minister to Russia. 1787, graduated at Harvard. 1794, minister at The Hague. 1797, married Louise Catherine Johnson of Maryland. 1797, minister at Berlin. 1802, member of Massachusetts State Senate. 1803, United States Senator. 1806, Professor of Rhetoric and Oratory at Harvard. 1809, Minister to Russia. 1811, nominated and confirmed by Senate as Judge of Supreme Court of the United States. Declined. 1814, Commissioner at Ghent to treat for peace with Great Britain. 1815, Minister to Great Britain. 1817, Secretary of State. 1825, elected President of the United States, 1830, elected a member of Congress and represented the district for 17 years, 1848, stricken with paralysis, February 21st in the capital, and died the second day after. Aren't we staying in this room a good while? said June. You have sat there staring out of that window looking at nothing for just ten minutes, and not a word have you spoken. Mr. Spear had disappeared into space, and so we made our way across the little hall to the room that belonged to Mr. Adams. It was in the disorder that men's rooms are apt to be. On the table were quill pens and curious old papers with seals on them, and on one I saw the date, June 16, 1768, the whole document written out in the hand of John Adams, beginning very prim and careful, then moving off into a hurried scrawl as spirit mastered the letter. There is a little hair-covered trunk in the corner, studded with brass nails, and boots and leggings and canes, and a jackknife, and a boot-jack, and, on the window-sill, a friendly snuff-box. In the clothes-press were buff trousers, and an embroidered coat, and shoes with silver buckles, and several suits of everyday clothes showing wear and patches. On up to the garret we groped, and bumped our heads against the rafters. The light was dim, but we could make out more apples and strings, and roots and herbs in bunches hung from the peak. Here there was a three-legged chair, and a broken spinning wheel, and the junk that is too valuable to throw away, yet not too good enough to keep, but, quote, some day may be needed, end quote. 
Down the narrow stairway we went, and in the little kitchen, Sammy, the artist, and Mr. Spear, the custodian, were busy at the fireplace preparing dinner. There is no starve in the house, and none is needed. The crane and brick oven and long-handled skillets suffice. Sammy is an expert camp cook, and swears there is death in the chafing dish, and grows profane if you mention one. His skill in turning flapjacks by the simple manipulation of the long-handled griddle means more to his true ego than the finest canvas. June offered to set the table, but Sammy said she could never do it alone, so together they brought out the blue china dishes and the pewter plates. Then they drew water at the stone-curbed well with the great sweep, carrying the leather-bailed bucket between them. I was feeling quite useless and asked, Can't I do something to help? There is the lye-leech. You might bring out some ashes and make some soft soap, said June, pointing to the ancient leech and soap kettle in the yard, the joys of Mr. Spear's heart. Sammy stood at the back door and pounded on the dishpan with a wooden spoon to announce that dinner was ready. It was quite a sumptuous meal, potatoes baked in the ashes, beans baked in the brick oven, coffee made on the hearth, fish cooked in the skillet, and pancakes made on a griddle with a handle three feet long. Mr. Spear had aspirations toward an apple pie, and had made violent efforts in that direction, but the product being dough on top and charcoal on the bottom, we declined the nomination with thanks. June suggested that pies should be baked in an oven and not cooked on a pancake griddle. The custodian thought there might be something in it, a suggestion he would have scorned and scouted had it come from me. To change the rather painful subject, Mr. Spear began to talk about John and Abigail Adams, and to quote from their letters a volume he seems to have by heart. Do you know why their love was so very steadfast, and why they stimulated the mental and spiritual natures of each other so? asked June. No. Why was it? Well, I'll tell you. It was because they spent one-third of their married life apart. Indeed. Yes. And in this way they lived in an ideal world. In all their letters, you see they are always counting the days ere they will meet. Now, people who are together all the time never write that way, because they do not feel that way. I'll leave it to Mr. Spear. But Mr. Spear, being a bachelor, did not know. Then the case was referred to Sammy, and Sammy lied and said he had never considered the subject. And would you advise, then, that married couples live apart one-third of the time in the interests of domestic peace? I asked. Certainly, said June, with her Burne Jones chin in the air. Certainly, but I fear you are the man who does not understand, and anyway I am sure it will be much more profitable for us to cultivate the receptive spirit and listen to Mr. Spear. Such opportunities do not come very often. I did not mean to interrupt you, Mr. Spear. Go on, please. And Mr. Spear filled a clay pipe with natural leaf that he crumbled in his hand, and deftly picking a coal from the fireplace with a shovel 150 years old, puffed five times silently, and began to talk. End of section 13